You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 171. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. It's May 2021, more specifically. I don't know why I need to say the date today. May 17th, 2021. And before we get into today's main topics, which I'm going to talk about the, uh, the, the ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline, and I'm going to talk a little bit more. We're going to get kind of into the weeds of uh, what security-first development means, and then just some interesting ideas on what, uh, what a crypto corporation could be like, all of the different ways of decision-makings that you could, you could design when it comes to uh, private keys, cryptography, cryptocurrency. I'll get into all of it. I'll make sure you understand it or at least understand enough of it. Uh, first of all, I want an update on, uh, I want to give you an update on my, uh, my in-apartment studio here in New Hampshire, which is kind of a new thing. Obviously, back in, uh, back in New York City, well, not obviously, I mean, I'm explaining it, but back in New York City, I tended to have one room, uh, maybe a little bit when I was in Manhattan, I had, uh, I had a separate room for podcasting, but since that was temporary, I couldn't turn it into a podcast studio. Now, here in New Hampshire, I have a separate room dedicated to things like uh, podcasting and uh, whiteboarding and separate work and things like that. So this is this has been a lot of fun. I am working on upgrading my equipment. I just got the Zoom PodTrack P4 uh, along with a new microphone stand. So hopefully that will make the sound a little bit better than it was last time in the studio. And uh, well, let me know if it's not as good. Well, I'll know, but you can let me know anyway. <laughs> Some of you did. But if, if the sound is not as good, we'll, uh, we'll adjust again. But uh, I think... I think we are we are getting there. Those of you who remember, Aaron came by a couple weeks ago, and we used this studio for the first time. Um, and it, I kind of assumed that I wouldn't get many in-person guests here in New Hampshire. For those of you who have been with me for a long time, you probably remember that I used to have a lot of guests uh, in... Um, in, in, when, when I was in New York, I started this podcast in 2018, and I used to visit other people's. Uh, uh, I, I used to visit other people's offices. I some pe- a lot of people would visit me in the office in at Foursquare HQ in New York, and that would be uh, you know that that would be a, a lot of fun. I mean, I, I remember going to Union Square Ventures to interview Bethany Crystal, and I. You know, Hillary Mason, I went to her office. One time I went out to Queens to interview Clyde Vanell, a member of the New York State Assembly. So all that was all that was great. And then I had a lot of people in the office too. I, you know, I remember um, well, even someone like uh, David Petruja came to the office and Charlie Oliver came to the office and all sorts of people uh, came to the office. I'm not going to mention everybody, but it was uh, very exciting. Oh, the, the, one of the funniest ones was the whole team from Lieberland. Uh, that was... Uh, that was pretty. That was pretty crazy when um, you know the founder of Liberland came in, and then his entire cabinet of the the president of Liberland uh, was there in the office. I was not expecting that. Um, so, anyway, hopefully I'll have people here. I feel like 
the scene is different now. You can't really visit people's offices in New York City anymore. So that's done. It's not like I'm. It's not like I'm leaving it. It's like it's it no. Well, it no longer exists since uh, a year plus ago. Let's say eighteen months ago, and um, it uh, or since March twenty twenty. I think the last person to come into my office was uh, Adam Compelner. Talk about experimental design. After that, I you, you know you weren't allowed to have guests in the office. So. Um, now I'm in New Hampshire, and it turns out I will have some in-person guests over the next few months, which is really exciting. Uh, some people might even come to uh, here to to the to the local Maximum Studio, which I you know is is crazy. It'll probably be a, a bit of a different flavor. There's a different scene up here, and so that will kind of maybe change the nature of the podcast. But um, we'll talk more about that later. And we'll, but you know, I feel like even though I've been doing this for three years, I'm constantly evolving this podcast. I feel like I'm getting better at carrying a show, carrying solo shows like I am today, which solo shows are often very difficult because you have to kind of talk for, I say, 20 to 40 minutes. And it's, uh, I feel like this one, I kind of put it off. I, I, I'm better off sometimes just turning the microphone on and seeing where it goes, but but um, uh, you know it's uh, it's so I'm, I'm evolving in terms of upgrading my technology. I've got the the uh, Zoom uh, PodTrack P4 here, and hope again. Hopefully the sound is better. And um, yeah, I uh, let's see what else happened this week. I I went to New York at the beginning of the week, and it was nice. I was able to visit some friends, and I. I was able to eat at a few nice places. Veselka is one of them, Ukrainian restaurant that I really like. There used to be 24 hours. I would go overnight when I was in grad school and do my homework there at like three in the morning, order chocolate milks or whatever. And um, But it's still really sad there. It's just not the way it used to be. It's You walk past a lot of places that you used to go to and you know the... Um, the, the signage is all scratched out, and you look at the interior, and it's all gutted, and you just think, you know, when is this coming back? And you walk around on the street, and there's, you know, who who's walking up and down the street? It's, it's just like, it's, it's, it's not as exciting as it used to be. Let's put it that way. Um, so... Anyway, let's uh, let's get let's get. I'm glad to be back in New Hampshire. Um, it just it feels very claustrophobic in New York these. Maybe it's just because I moved out here and everything is so open. And then going back there, it's not. But no, I was in New York for 15 years. It was it was great. It's just things have changed a little bit there. I think the fact that there's not a whole circus of things going on to kind of uh, keep you occupied then that, that's what makes it feel more claustrophobic because it's just, well, you know, which areas are going to be, uh, which areas are going to be more dangerous? There's a lot more like weirdos on the street kind of shouting at you. And it's sort of like, hmm, I don't know what's going to happen. And there's no upside. So hopefully that changes, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. I'll watch from afar uh, to see if it does. Okay, so let's talk about, oh, yeah. And then, of course, we don't need masks anymore, so that's kind of a marker here that's changed uh, this week from last week and from the rest of the pandemic. Uh, the, the mask mandate in 
New Hampshire has been lifted for a while, but now the CDC has said vaccinated people don't need to wear masks. A lot of stores have dropped it, so a lot of places around here have dropped the mask mandates, and of course nationwide, uh, that's happened. So that's kind of changed the, um, you know, this is really addressed for those of you who are who are listening from the future, and you're trying to create a movie that takes place uh, in the in the U.S. around this time. Well, this is this is around the week where people kind of stopped wearing masks, although there's still masks everywhere. I don't know when it's going to end. I bet if I were still in New York, I mean, there was masks everywhere in New York when I was there, so I assume that that's still the case. But we'll see what happens. Over the next few weeks, I have a feeling that it's just going to get less and less here in New Hampshire, which um, really makes life easier and easier. So that'll be cool. All right. So what exactly happened in this cyber attack? What, what, what is it, first of all? What is this? Because it's not, it's not an act of terrorism. It was not a political cyber attack. It was not a geopolitical thing. It was not somebody trying to get at the United States or anything like that. This was essentially a, a, a mafia, a criminal organization looking to make money. So they use something called ransomware, which means that, and this happens to individuals sometimes. I I don't know anyone's happened to, but it it could happen. And basically, it's software that gets into your computer or your network or your system, and it encrypts all your data. So it makes it unusable for you, and it makes it, you know, so that you really can't decrypt your data without their decryption keys. And they require a ransom, and oftentimes the ransom that they choose is a lot smaller, you know, something, something that you can, uh, you can actually pay, whereas it's, um, it, it, it's kind of worth your while to pay the ransom versus, you know, trying to figure out on your own, trying to track them down. So in this example, they asked for 75 Bitcoin. How much is 75 Bitcoin? Well, it's a lot. Uh, back when they asked for it, it was $5 million dollars. So they asked for $5 million, but if you think about it, uh, the the entire, this colonial pipeline, which is on the entire southeast, basically anywhere from Florida, northern Florida, to parts of Texas, up to New Jersey, basically that triangle had massive gas shortages and people waiting online at the gas tank and um, prices rising. $5 million is actually a pretty small price to pay to make that go away immediately. And now 75 Bitcoin a week later is only $3.3 million. So maybe they could have waited a week. I don't know. But um, they, uh, they ended up paying that ransom. And oftentimes that seems like the good idea in the short run. Let's talk about, I'll get to in a few minutes, what, the, um, what that means for the long run. Uh, because, you know, you essentially feel like, well, the bad guys won. You know, they they got their $5 million. Um, but who, how, you know, if you think about it, for that to actually make a difference, this is not some huge organization. If this were an organization of, you know, 50, 100 people, um, splitting up that $5 million doesn't go very far. So this is kind of like a small number of people who probably <laughs> didn't, um, didn't expect I don't know if they, they knew what they were getting into here. But anyway, I tried to read a bunch of articles to try to understand a little bit more about what's going on. So I'm going to quote from some of these articles so we can, we can 
kind of uh, start to understand. This the first one's from SciTech Daily, which is a little bit you know less known. I you know I also read CNN, Washington Post, CNBC. It's amazing how small-minded some of these mainstream uh, media organizations can be. Oftentimes they're talking about it in a partisan way, like, oh, they, they hacked the pipeline, just like they hacked the election, I mean, back in, back in 2016, like, it's so dumb. And then, of course, there's a lot of like, well, this is Biden, you know, it's Biden's fault, or he didn't re re respond to it. I don't know, maybe there's a lot that can be said about that. But I think the more interesting thing is, first of all, a lot of people don't understand what exactly happened here. So from SciTech Daily, they seem to think that the problem lies in outsourcing, or partially at least. I'm going to quote them here. Many U.S. companies outsource software development because of a talent shortage, and some of that outsourcing goes to companies in Eastern Europe that are vulnerable to Russian operatives. Well, I guess that, um, I'm not sure, uh, but if that, that, that's not the full story, but I guess that kind of makes sense if you have some software teams, particularly teams that are, that, um, are you know, could be a, a, a security, could introduce a security hole. Well, you don't know if they've been infiltrated if they're not nearby and, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, kind of in Eastern Europe somewhere. Uh, I'm also going to quote here that they say that the ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline on May 7th, 2021, exemplifies the huge challenges the U.S. faces in shoring up its cyber defenses. The private company, which controls a significant component of the U.S. energy infrastructure and supplies nearly half of the East Coast's liquid fuels, was vulnerable to an all-too-common type of cyber attack. The FBI has attributed the attack to a Russian cyber crime gang. It would be difficult for the government to mandate better security at private companies, and the government is unable to provide that security for the private sector. Um, Okay, so this is essentially a, a, a mafia, and it is, um, it's, 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 it's gang of criminals. So what do we do about that? I'm going to get that, to that in a second, but first I'm going to do a, a couple more quotes, one from the Washington Post about ransomware in general, of which there have been a few, even a, some against the government. Um, sometimes they'll attack individual computers and it'll be like pay $300 and you get everything back and you know a lot of people would end up doing it because you lost everything and you just pay $300 which nobody likes to pay $300 but you know it goes away and you you forget about that pretty quickly so it says here in the Washington Post most incidents go unreported anecdotally you know that makes sense it's kind of embarrassing anecdotally not necessarily because it's not really your fault but it's like most people don't want to talk about it Anecdotally, according to companies that help victims hit by ransomware attacks, more than half pay some form of ransom estimated last year to average about $312,000. That must be for corporate clients. According to Palo Alto Network, another cybersecurity company that deals regularly with ransomware attacks, some experts suspect that amount is low. So uh, you have all of these companies paying these amounts to cyber criminals who are holding data for ransom. Now, is there anything that you could do to protect yourself from these things? Well, I don't know what you could do as an individual, but certainly, uh, well, 
just general security hygiene, security practices are good. You know, make sure you know what you're downloading onto your computer. Um, most things that you download are not going to be ransomware attacks, but I, I'm not exactly sure. I, I wish I had an example of what type of application people have downloaded that they, they thought they were downloading something else and it was a ransomware attack, although I haven't heard about it. But there, look, these things can be protected for, particularly, we're talking about here, physical infrastructure, physical oil pipelines, which, you know, you should be able to secure um, with, uh, and, and again, I'm not kind of an expert in their in their network system or their security system, but I would bet that they haven't, they didn't invest nearly enough into it. And I suspect that they'll invest a lot more now, not just because they lost $5 million, not enough. It was just $5 million. They probably wouldn't invest because, you know, then it's a lot to hire a team or whatnot, but no, they lost, you know, think of how much they lost with all that, you know, with, with all that business they lost over one week for an entire section of the country. It's, uh, it, that's got to be, I, I don't even want to put an order of magnitude on it, but it's got to be way more, orders of magnitude more than the $5 million they lost in the ransom, ransom. So a lot of organizations, when they get into this uh, situation, they decide to pay the ransom because it's so small compared to fixing the problem compared to going after the criminals. I mean, going after this criminal gang, maybe it's possible. Maybe you can, um, you know, send a team of private detectors over to Eastern Europe and you can track them down, but it's going to cost you a lot more than $5 million to do that. Um, so, uh, but of, of course, some people say that, uh, and, and it's true, that paying these ransoms encourage more attacks because then, you know, more people, uh, essentially the, the criminal gang and other criminal gang is like, yeah, great. Okay, we got paid. We got our payday from doing this sort of thing. So why don't we do it again? Um, there is a flip side to that. And I'm concerned about that. It's sort of, it's very unsavory, the idea of paying a ransom because it's almost like, you know, you feel like the, the bad guys won. But there is a flip side to paying ransom because it also encourages another side to the arms race. It encourages more security. Uh, so, in other words, if you're in a bad neighborhood and people are getting, you know, people are getting broken into, but people with locks, say, are not getting broken into, then, um, you know, yes, you might have some fantasies about getting a, uh, you know, getting a vigilante group together and going and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and getting the bad guys, but in reality, that's probably not going to happen um, and if, you're in, if you're in one of these neighborhoods. And so you're better off just locking your doors. And in this case, um, when it comes to cybersecurity, there are a lot of things that you can do that, um, you know, that, that, that make you safe from these types of attacks. And so ultimately, I think that we're leading into an era of security-first development where a lot of the a lot of the services that are being created, a lot of the software uh, that is being created, a lot of the new software and a lot of the new you know networking protocols and standards and all that are going to be security first and are going to keep these uh, attacks in mind when they're being developed, so that it's not like each company has to you know each company has to figure out uh, the best security practices is kind of just built into 
to all of the software. Um, and that might seem, <laughs> for those of you who have worked in the industry uh, especially, that might seem kind of pie in the sky because there's so many things you look at and you're like, oh my God, this is, uh, this is so bad. I can't believe this hasn't already been attacked. But as time goes on and as more of these attacks take place, and it's not over, I'm sure more and more will take place, uh, it will kind of spur on the development of security-first practices and protocols, which, you know, there are a lot of things that can mean, I realize that it's kind of vague, but I feel like rather than just slapping something together, that, uh, slapping together uh, some software and some networks that, uh, that, that, that run core infrastructure at organizations or for, for countries, uh, you generally have kind of a, a base layer that you can consider very secure and, and build on top of that. And I think that's sort of where, um, where we're leading to. And if you think, oh, people will never be, you know, people will never be that careful about security, well, maybe these ransomware attackers will make them uh, more uh, cognizant of security. And you know what? I'd rather be attacked by these... Uh, these these ransomware guys then be attacked by uh, a, a country or a group of terrorists that are actually trying to take down the infrastructure because that would be way worse. Um, so, all right, one example of security-first development is blockchain itself, which is kind of ironic because the cyber hackers are using Bitcoin in their scheme. They want to be paid in Bitcoin, but it's not because Bitcoin is unsecured. It's because the, the Bitcoin is very secure for the criminals. Once they get it, they can be assured that they got it, and there are ways they can, you know, they can also be assured that they're not going to be, um, you know, th th they're not going to have their funds frozen or anything like that. And the Bitcoin blockchain has never been hacked, and most blockchains have never been hacked. Uh, the Ethereum blockchain has never been hacked. It's just that some of the smart contracts which exist on the chain, which are you know more complicated uh, pieces of code, have been hacked because someone made a mistake in the code. So what you want is something, is you want kind of development to be slower almost. You want uh, to make very simple pieces of code that are well-tested. And then, once you have that, more people will be able to use it. I'm going to link on the show notes page, which is localmaxradio.com slash, uh, slash 171. I'm going to link to the Red Hat Security First Architecture uh, article. It's probably, probably would only be useful to engineers, but... Uh, Generally, I think it's there's some interesting ideas in here about you know how to design for security from the get-go. A lot of legacy systems will that there are a lot of systems out there, even from banks, even from whatever that, that from core infrastructure that haven't been upgraded in many many years. Uh, they might be subject to attacks like this. And they might have to rebuild, and so if they do rebuild, you know. They sh they're going to use kind of a, a more modern approach where they deal with uh, these problems where you could have attackers all the way in another country in another part of the world because you really want to be able to avoid that. And I think you can. You know, this is physical infrastructure. It's not, you know, y there should always be an override where you could be able to do things manually and there should always be backups that are not connected to the rest of the system and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, uh, a lot of this can be designed for. It's just a matter of, of doing it. Um, okay, so 
that is, that's just what I wanted to say about that story. Um, now I, I want to talk a little bit about governance in general. Uh, we're all taught how a bill becomes a law, for example, but um, how much do you know about corporate governance? I bet a lot of people don't know that much about corporate governance. You don't know how does a CEO get removed by the board of directors or how, do, how, how are people on a board chosen, uh, even though the latter is just as likely to affect us. I mean, laws are likely to affect us, but, you know, um, if... Uh, if uh, you know the, the management of your company is reshuffled, that can affect you. If you're buying products, you know if you're you're buying products from certain companies and then um, they they decide to change what they do, that affects you. So oftentimes, that stuff affects us just as much, uh, and we're we're less likely to know how that all works. And now, with the advent of uh, cryptocurrencies. Let's, I'll use Bitcoin as the example, we can create any system we want of governance. And I, I talked about this before. I talked about this, uh, well, well I'll, I'll get into what I talked about in episode 126 in a bit. But it's interesting that you can create um, systems whereby you, know, you can have a certain combination of people voting to allocate money to a certain thing. Or you can have uh, a certain uh, people voting on whether some action gets taken on the blockchain. The, the, the main one that I could think about is spending some money. That's the one that's easy, that, that's the one that's kind of easy to wrap around that you know you could do, you could spend Bitcoin if certain people agree to it. Um, these arrangements are very interesting. They're no longer fiduciary. So if you have a corporate board, that board needs to act in the interest of the shareholder. So if you're a shareholder, you know that you can invest and you know, they're not going to use it in their, in their own personal interest, for example. Um, in episode 108, of course, you talked about the Bernie Sanders plan to add different people to boards, different stakeholders who you know, will use the corporation to, uh, uh, to allocate funds for their own interests or to outside interests, which... Uh, I said might not be a good idea, um, but there are kind of legal guidelines there. Whereas the difference with crypto is going to be there's no legal guidelines. So you kind of have to trust whoever owns these keys that they'll vote. Um, well, maybe you'll trust that they'll vote in their own interest, and maybe you know their own interest is what you want. And so then you know you want to be a part of the system. And sometimes it could be keys that. Um, the same person has access to. So for example, there's something called Casa Wallet out there, which is a security solution for people who own large amounts of Bitcoin. And what they have is they have a three of five wallet system. So they have five keys out there and you need three to spend your Bitcoin, but you put all five in different places. And so that means that, and this is not for your day-to-day -day spending, this is for you know what, what you have kind of stored away. And so... Basically, it means someone robs your house, no problem. They get one of the five keys. There's nothing they can do, and then you could quickly um, regenerate that. And so it makes your situation a lot more secure. Uh, so it's, it's five voters, but and you need a majority of the five voters, but it's all essentially, well, the company has one, but it's, it's all essentially the same person uh, voting on it, just in, in, in different situations. So you can make things much more secure, and... It's, it's probably the most secure thing you can imagine. I, I mean, it, it changes the game. If you think about something like hiding gold, um, well, 
yeah, you could be pretty secure about hiding gold. You could hide vaults, but, uh, you know, somebody else can get access to that vault. Let's say if there's a political upheaval or there's a war or something. I, I've been listening to Michael Saylor interviews on Bitcoin, and he makes the case that, you know, with gold, yes, you could store your gold in a vault, but, you know, if you want to store it for 100 years, there'll probably be a war or something. And, you know, if you have, uh, if, if you have it in multi-sig wallets, then it sort of makes it less uh, likely that uh, a physical attacker can actually get a hold of your cryptocurrency, in which case, you know, they're less likely to, to try to begin to, 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 you know, they're less likely to try to begin with, which hopefully the idea is to create a more peaceful society, which, which we all want. Um, so, okay, so that's interesting. So, so let's say we have a, a situation, a multi-sig situation. I, I, I told you about one that is a good example. It's three of five, and all five are owned by the same person in different places. But you could also think of a situation where you have five keys and they're owned by five different people and you need three of them to agree to spend it. Um, and in episode 126, I talked about this uh, when it came to voting system. These, this was more in the, in the context of political voting systems. But I talked about something called, uh, I, you're not going to like this term, <laughs> monotone Boolean functions. That is a, uh, it's, it's a it's a it's a crazy math phrase, but it base it, it means um, kind of a scheme for a certain uh, a certain group of people can can vote to have this happen. And there it's monotone Boolean functions are very broad. It basically means there are ands and ors. So I'm going to give some examples of new forms of corporations or joint ownerships that you create. So the first one I think you can imagine pretty easily is the so-called M of N. And I don't know why they always use the same letters, but M is like the number of votes needed and N is the number of votes total. So the, the CASA wallet, for example, is three of five. You could do something like, you know, seven of 12. Let's say there are 12 voters need seven to spend the money. Or you could do more. You could do 40 of 50. Or you could do two of 50 which is kind of very dangerous because if you have 50 people, all it takes is for two to get together and they scheme to, to take it. So that the, 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 but who knows? There might be cases where you want something like that. So you can have, set the number of votes and you could set the threshold, but you can do something a little bit more, uh, a little bit more sophisticated than that. First of all, you can assign people multiple votes. That's not too hard to do. That would be step two. Um, so you can have kind of an electoral college situation where, you know, each person, you have nine votes, you have 12 votes, you have six votes, et cetera, et cetera. And we need this threshold to, uh, you know, to, to, to have something occur, to, sp to spend that money. And then step three is you could imagine there are all sorts of different combos that you can use to spend. Uh, essentially, what these Boolean monotone functions do is there are a series of, of um, for those of you who are not uh, you know, for not programmers. They're just a series of like statements that are ands and ors. So you need that guy or you need that girl and one of these six people. Or you need, you know, uh, this cluster to say yes, which is M of N. You know, you, you, you basically have some combination of people where it's not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily uh, a series of, of, of votes where you can say, okay, it's, it's, it's just a vote and you need a threshold? No, it's like, it, it's something a little bit more complicated. Um, I guess one, one you can think of is like, hey, I need, 
I, I need person A and then one of person B and person C. Uh, I guess you could kind of assign them a vote vote numbers that would get that to work. But you you, you get the idea. It's sort of like um, it's sort of like uh, you know maybe maybe there's a case where it's sort of federated where I have three clusters of three of fives and there are fifteen people and they're they're organized in three clusters of three of fives and then. Of the three, you need two out of three to to make that action. So it's like kind of a a federated system. You have three clusters, and of that three, two need to vote. And within the three, you need three of five to vote. Something like that. I know it's kind of mind-boggling when I'm just kind of used doing this by audio, but you can build things up that are very very complicated. Is the um, is the idea? And I think that these. Uh, these new forms of decision-making rules of which you could make any Boolean monotone function, you know, there's a lot. So the one that I, the term that I mentioned in episode 126 is the Dedekind number, which is given the number of voters, how many potential, um, how many potential functions are there? And, you know, it's, it's pretty exponential. It's like, well, just for two, there's six, but then it goes up, it goes up even from there. Like if if you have 10 voters, there are tons of different arrangements that you can make. Um, I I don't even have it in front of me, but, you know, picture just like, you know, billions and billions. So um, what kind of arrangements, what kind of virtual corporations are people going to make there? And that's sort of, uh, that's sort of an interesting idea. I, I don't know what the I feel like it's it's interesting to think about what is what sort of schemes will people come up with in the future to organize human action in that way, and it also brings into question like what is ownership now? What does ownership mean? You know, if you talk about ownership of cryptocurrency, ownership of Bitcoin, okay, I could kind of wrap my head around that. Is that okay? Well, I have uh, a key that I can use to spend the bitcoin. Great. I'm the owner. That's sort of that's sort of what we that that's sort of what we what we consider. But what if I just own the keys to some vast boolean monotone scheme, some kind of virtual corporation here? Then what happens? Uh am I the owner? Am I the part owner? And all of this becomes in some ways more opaque because you don't know who owns what keys and it becomes very hard to regulate and it becomes easy to anonymize. And I think this becomes kind of a new type of corporation that people can get involved with that can move around large amounts of capital um, in, uh, in a short period of time and interesting and in, in kind of unique ways. And I'm excited to see what people come up with um, in, in that area. I wish I could be more specific, but... Um, Again, it's, you know, think about it this way. They say they're, they're going to try to tax Bitcoin spending. Okay, you tax Bitcoin spending if you, if you trade Bitcoin for Ethereum or something like that. But what if, uh, what if you're part of, what if you have the key to some kind, one of these virtual corporations and they're trading, then are you, um, are you liable? Do you have, and how do you, you know, I don't think that will ever be, uh, uh, a, I don't think you'll be able to a tax the corporation because there'll be no one to talk to, and b you won't be able to tax the individuals because they'll be so dispersed and so easy to anonymize. You wouldn't be able to track them down. So, 
Um, I'm not saying that every organization should run this way. I think the idea of a traditional corporation where you know who the people are, um, some people would say there's someone to sue in there, uh, but um, you know who the people are and you, you have someone who is uh, uh, accountable and you, know, you have people who are you know, forming management teams, forming boards, et cetera, uh, to, to um, go after a certain goal that is still available, but these hidden corporations, I feel like there's going to be a lot that comes out of it, both good and bad. I mean, some of these criminal organizations might decide to do it this way, but I feel like there's also uh, a lot of innovation to be made in the uh, legitimate uh, private markets and the legitimate, uh, you know, the, the, the legitimate area of innovation as well. So uh, let me know what you think about let me know if that made sense to you at all, because I, it does make sense to me. I'm not just I'm not just uh, talking air here. I think um, this is something that I think about a lot. Uh, but um, th these are new ideas, and I feel like in 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 due time, maybe it'll be in a few years, maybe five years, ten years, uh, it'll be very clear what I'm talking about. But um, and I'd be interested in like investing in some of these. <laughs> I don't know what I, I guess I have to do a lot more research, but uh, we'll see. So all right. Hopefully, you understand a little bit more, bit more about what's hap what happened with Colonial. Hopefully, uh, you understand why they paid the uh, why they paid the ransom, why it's unsavory, but also uh, maybe how this could be fixed in the future with security first development. And then, hopefully, you got some mind blowing ideas when it comes to the future of. Uh, virtual corporations and how these Boolean monotone functions or whatever you want to call it, just these series of ands and ors can create uh, schemes of cooperation that we never thought imaginable in the past. Comment on my locals page, maximum.locals.com and also support the show there at maximum.locals.com. Appreciate everyone who supports it. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at LocalMaxRadio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to LocalMaxRadio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.